I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. We are into Season 1, Episode 26, and we're in the Gospel of John, Chapter 9, Verses 1 through 39. Before I get to that, I just want to say that I've rescheduled our Zoom gathering for uh, supporters to May 15th at 5 p.m. That's a Sunday night, May 15th at 5 p.m. So if you'd like to join in and uh, with this special event for supporters, you can become a supporter by finding the information in the program description. And uh, we'd love to have you join us then. It's going to be a fun time as we tackle uh, a new kind of topic, and I'll get to that uh, in weeks to come. But today we are in John chapter 9, and I'm going to start uh, reading a long passage, 39 verses, but it's a great story, and I want us to know the whole thing. As Jesus went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with his saliva. And he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. And others said, No, he he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and had opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? And so they were divided. And finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a, blind, of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. We all know what it's like to hurt. A child falls down, runs into his or her mom, and she kisses the skin knee. It works. The pain goes away. I wouldn't recommend that treatment to medical professionals because it only works when moms do it. As we move into the teenage years, we experience other forms of hurt. We rarely like our looks. You know, my legs are too long. My ears are too big. I'm too fat, too skinny. We get hurt socially. Everyone has experiences of being rejected by peers in some way. Maybe experience a, a real failure for the first time, and, and that hurts. We feel the pain of loneliness, of broken friendships. Perhaps the most painful thing in life is broken relationships. And people who are closest to us, and we somehow get crossways with them. Failures of various kinds, of unfulfilled dreams, the death of a loved one. By the time we're adults, most of us have a pretty complete catalog of hurts from A to Z, of all the ways we've experienced pain, all the things that have happened that hurt. We're familiar with suffering. What gets overwhelming is when we look past ourselves and see the needs of the world. Confronted by the statistics on hunger and disease and AIDS and COVID, all around us we see human suffering. It's overwhelming, especially when, when most of it is preventable, when most of it is actually caused by corruption and leadership of the nations that suffer. Political leaders who profit while their own people die. See people oppressed economically and racially, politically. Somewhere in the world, it's everywhere. A phrase coined a few years ago really is applicable to us. It's compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue. There's so many crises. What can we do? Raise a few bucks. What's that going to do for the overwhelming needs of the world? And so inevitably, we have to ask, how does God feel about all the world's hurts? People struggle with this. The classic dilemma is put this way. How can an all-powerful God of love allow suffering? Either God is not all-powerful and cannot stop the suffering, or God is not all-loving because he refuses to stop it. For the deep answer, and that takes time to sort out, for a deep answer, I'd really recommend three great resources on a deeper theology and the practical realities that, that surface here around suffering. C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. Uh, that's probably the best book about it that I've ever read, The Problem of Pain. Philip Yancey's great book, Where is God When It Hurts? Where is God When It Hurts? Or James Dobson's kind of classic, When God Doesn't Make Sense. When God Doesn't Make Sense. Spend some time reading and praying to get the deeper answer to the problem of suffering. But the quick answer is just as true and maybe more powerful. One thing we see when we look at the person of Jesus in the Gospels is how much God does care when people suffer. And here in chapter 9, it's a perfect example. Verse 1, Jesus is coming. You know, he's just been that from nearly being killed in the temple. 
And John puts the story sometime right after that. But that chapter 8, it was a heavy and long speech by Jesus that left the group of Pharisees inside the temple ready to lynch him right then and there. And sensing the growing hostility, the disciples must have started pushing Jesus along outside the temple and maybe looking back over their shoulders and saying, keep it moving, Jesus. But of course, we don't know exactly how much of a gap there is between this story and the last, but Jesus again does unpredictable things. He stops dead in his tracks and he begins to look at a blind beggar. He looked. He saw. The Greek word is stronger than just like, you know, a casual glance. It's a searching kind of deep, penetrating kind of look. The disciples are thinking, if you've seen one blind man, you've seen them all. I wonder how good is our eyesight. Do we just give a peripheral look at the people around us? Do we hurry on past because we've got an agenda to keep up and a lot on our to-do list? Are we willing to look into the hearts of a hurting person who might live next door or work in the cubicle right next to us or who sits beside us in class? Are we willing to look and maybe have our hearts broken with them? Now, Jesus saw him and he was a well-known temple beggar. And to the frustration of his disciples, you just can't hurry Jesus along. You cannot hurry God. Just like in the story about the daughter of a man named Jairus in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is on his way to heal this little girl, walking through a crowd. A woman sneaks up, touches the hem of Jesus' cloak, and is healed. And Jesus knows what's happening and stops to talk with her, while Jairus and the disciples are impatiently waiting. And then the word comes that the young girl is dead. But Jesus isn't worried. Time is nothing to him. And when he's ready to go, he goes, and he goes on to tenderly heal the little girl, because time is nothing to him. And that's why we, when we get so impatient with God, we recognize he's not on our time schedule. The disciples saw the beggar as an object of theological discussion and dialogue. They depersonalized him by expressing the common belief of the day that all sickness was, was the result of some sin. You do something bad, and God gets even with you by making you sick. I'd guess that there are a lot of people today who labor under that misconception of God. You do something bad, God's going to get even with you. So who sinned, they asked. His parents or him? Who sinned that he was born blind? And Jesus doesn't really answer the question. He just says, neither. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, don't read into that, that the man was born blind so that later on, Jesus could walk by and heal him. People have interpreted this passage that way, that he was born blind so that Jesus could have a good object lesson. And that's not what Jesus is saying. It would be heartless to think Jesus purposely caused him to be born blind. God doesn't cause disease or illness or suffering or disability or death. The source of those things isn't in God, but in the brokenness of sin that has damaged our world. The brokenness of sin that Jesus came to redeem but Jesus doesn't really answer the question. What he says is, is that through this misfortune, God's work would come forth. Through this misfortune, God's work would come forth. That's how it is with suffering. There will always be suffering in this world until Christ comes again. And with it, there will always be the opportunity for the work of God to be displayed. That's a choice we make as the ones who experience the suffering. Uh, for example, think of the life of Johnny Erickson Tata. While a high school student back in Maryland, back in like the 1970s, 
She was just out with friends and she dove into a neck into a lake and she broke her neck. Instantly became a quadriplegic. And people ask how, why could God let this happen? Because she was a very active in her uh, Christian life and, and Christian ministries at her school. You know, just a bubbly, perky, everything you'd want for a, a teenage girl. And her life was forever altered. Did God cause it? No. Was it her sin? No. It was a terrible circumstance. But what grew out of her suffering, and I hope you know her story, was a worldwide ministry that has touched millions of people and has uplifted the dignity and the lives of people with disabilities. Her book speaks so eloquently from her own experience about how Jesus met her in the midst of her depression and anger and hopelessness and fear. God didn't cause her disability, but God shines through the way she now copes with her disability. And then Jesus did something so interesting with this blind man. The magnificence of his divinity and humanity come through together in something so very simple. He just spits. Do you ever think about that? We love the simple words, Jesus wept, because it helps us to identify with his depth of human emotions. How about Jesus spitteth? <laughs> the Greek word here is actually an onomatopoeia. The word sounds like exactly what it describes, like the words crash or slurp. The word is ptuo. You almost have to spit to say it properly. Ptuo. That's Jesus's real humanity. He spit on the dirt and he made a little mud. This is similar to the way Jesus healed another blind man in the Gospel of Mark, where he spit directly on the man's eyes. Imagine the reaction of the blind man, some guy rubbing mud made out of spit on your face. Good that the Holy Spirit filters out some of the things from Scripture, because if not, probably we would have heard some pretty choice things coming out of that man's mouth. Jesus repeats the I am statement. I am the light of the world. He gives sight to the blind, as predicted as a messianic miracle in Isaiah 29.18 or Isaiah 35.5 or Isaiah 42.7. All of those speak to him, giving sight to the blind. Physically and even more so symbolically of spiritual blindness, blindness, Jesus again is giving evidence that he is indeed the Messiah. He's backing up his words and claims with demonstrations of his power. Now the blind man didn't immediately say thank you. Thanks a lot for spitting on my face. Thanks for the mud. A lot of people give me money. You gave me mud in the eye. Wonderful thing. No, there was something about it that that touch that Jesus had because Jesus had a way of picking up on the vibes of people who were before him like no one else has, he's ever met before. In ancient times, spit was believed to have curative or even magical powers. You know, they'd use spit to drive away evil spirits or to avert the evil eye. You do that by spitting. Uh, you may remember a scene from the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. As the groom is walking down the aisle, uh, everyone just starts spitting on him. Why? Because in that Greek culture, Greek Orthodox culture, spit was a way to drive away the evil eye. It was their superstition. There's power in the spit. Were there curative powers in the saliva that Jesus put on this guy's eyes? No. Jesus could have cured him without the saliva. He healed other blind people by washing the eyes or with no touch at all. He did it this way to connect with people. Because you know, he even healed people at a distance and touch was not really required. But he did touch a leper. 
because no one in their right mind would touch a leper, and he touches this blind man. Often he does things that require our response. And so he says to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, tells the blind man. The blind man protests. Well, first of all, I wouldn't have to go wash if he hadn't put this mud on my face. And second, why the pool of Siloam? How about Bethesda? It's closer. It's right around the corner. I know how to get there. I mean, water's water, right? You know, occasionally people try to argue with, argue with God, bargain with God. But eventually we come to the place where we can say, I don't understand it all, but I take you at your word, Lord. I don't understand it all, but I take you at your word. A place where we're able to take a step of faith, not understanding it all, feeling a little foolish, perhaps getting, you know, jibes from others like, oh man, you're really getting religion now. What is great here is that in a beautiful way, Jesus allows the man to be involved in the process. And it's the same with us. We have to take a little step in the dark. Even feeling a little foolish, there's some way in which the Lord wants us to cooperate with him, obey him, and then see him work. But there's something in that voice and in that touch that made the blind man go to Siloam. What happened when he got there? He's washing his face and eyes. The cool water is running down his face. And as the water clears things, start coming into focus. At first, he's just able to you know, put a few shapes to things that he had only sensed before. Oh, that's what water looks like. That's the sky. That's the color blue. And that moved on to unspeakable amazement. Sadly, the rest of the story is about how human and self-centered people are. Neighbors and then the Pharisees give the man the third degree. Who did it? How'd he do it? Where is he now? The man tells the same simple story several times. The spotlight shines on his parents. Is this your son? Was he really blind? Is this some scam you've cooked up? And now it's getting serious. And the parents know that there's the possibility of punishment. If they give the wrong answer, they could be thrown out of the temple, excommunicated. That means they'd be cut off socially and economically from everyone else. They could lose everything, and so they bail on their son in a hurry. says, we don't know how it happened. You go ask him. So sad. The parents desert their son to protect themselves, and then they add another level of terrible, terrible hurt in his life. Think people are, you know, when you think people are with you, but then they fade in the stretch. It's like having a false friend, someone who bails out at you. That really, really hurts. But the formerly blind man sticks to his guns. You say this guy is a bad man? All I know is that once I was blind, but now I see. How are you going to argue with that? Well, talk about being a witness for Christ. It's all right here. It's interesting to see this man's understanding of Jesus grew in this conversation. You know, he first calls Jesus a man in verse 11. And then when questioned again in verse 17, he calls Jesus a prophet and finally, after getting thrown out, he is excommunicated from the temple. The story goes on, and John tells us that. Jesus had heard that they had found him, and when he found the blind man, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And then in verse 38, John tells us the man recognized Jesus for who he truly was. He believed Jesus to be the Lord. So seeing is believing. The most powerful form of Christian witness is just your own story. Simple, straightforward, honest, but gutsy. I don't know all the answers, but once I was blind, 
and now I see. I didn't have meaning or purpose, and now I do through Jesus. I, and I can recommend him to you. That's a beautiful illustration of witness for us to do. You share with others what Jesus has done for you. It happens to you, and then it can happen through you. So how's your spiritual eyesight? How's your witness? As I get older, I'm experiencing more and more problems with my eyes. And you may have some of these common eye problems too, you know, like those floaters, those things that kind of float around inside your eyeballs that can sometimes obscure your, your vision. I actually have what's called presbyopia, which literally means elder eyes, uh, good for a Presbyterian minister, which means blurry and I can't focus. I have to constantly readjust. And so now I have graduated to trifocals, which when you first put them on, it really is like uh, trying to see through a fishbowl. Or you have contacts that get cloud or cataracts, I'm sorry, that mean your eyes are getting clouded over with a film over your vision. And there are lots of other eye diseases. But you know, that can happen to our spiritual eyesight. People get distracted. People who have lost their focus can't see life clearly. People who have kind of a film over their spiritual eyes, they're spiritually veiled. May Jesus give you new vision. That's my prayer. A new vision of who he is, a new vision of who you are, and a new vision of your role as a witness in this world, and a greater desire to tell your story. In the year 1748, a captain of a slave ship named John Newton was caught at sea in a terrible storm, and in the midst of that, he cried out to God, and he lived, and from that experience, he became a changed man. He gave up the slave trade eventually and went into the ministry, and eventually penned probably the most well-known hymn in the world, Amazing Grace. It's a hymn that's been recorded by the widest selection of artists from Elvis way on down. Why are people so attracted to this hymn? Because Newton immortalized the simple words of this blind beggar. You know it. Say it with me in the first, in the first stanza. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. At some level, we are all blind beggars who need the gracious touch of Jesus. May it be the prayer of your life today and your experience with Christ this week. You're the blind beggar. He touches your eyes. He gives you vision for whatever you need this week. You can turn to him and he'll give you the kind of clarity you need. I once was blind, but now I see. Have a great week.